If you have a Bible, turn to Acts 2. We're going to finish out this second chapter. We've, we have been moving through the book of Acts, which has been a helpful book for us. And I think today is going to be helpful for many of us who want to see the person of Christ a little bit more clearly and how that can happen just by looking at something like the church. Acts 2. And you know, I actually stopped attending the church in 1994. I just quit. Because honestly, very frankly, I thought it was boring. I thought it would be boring. In the grand, great scheme of having a good time as a college freshman, I just didn't think that was going to happen with churchy people um, doing churchy things in churchy places, uh, especially on a Sunday morning, right? Even though a lot of my friends went to church on Sunday morning and I knew there would be girls there, I was just convinced that all that was going to find me was a bunch of boredom and shame and a bunch of old stories about old people in an old book that didn't really have anything to do with my modern day life. My parents would call me back when we had landlines, no cell phones. My parents would call me and say, hey, are you going to church? And I would just straight up lie. Yes, I'm going to a church. And I just came up with the name of a church that wasn't even a real church. Going to church, but really I was just sleeping in, folding my laundry, watching Judge Judy, just kind of getting through my weekend. When I did go out of guilt, because my roommates, my friends, as I said, did go to church, I would go, but I was just bored again. Bored. I couldn't wait for the boring guy up on stage to quit saying boring words so we could finally get to the boring music, and then when it was all done, go to Dairy Queen. (laughs) But even in those boring moments, I always wondered by looking around me how so many people weren't bored. They enjoyed what God was doing in their lives. They weren't bored at all. And I I just, I mean, I really truly remember thinking back in 1994, what is wrong with them? Or what is right with them and what is wrong with me? I mean, I could have told you what Jesus did. I could have given you the basics of the gospel story. I probably would have called him my savior had you asked me. I I, I prayed occasionally. Um, I could have named half of the books of the Bible, probably on a good day, really like maybe a third of the books of the Bible I would have been able to name. But anytime I would be surveyed on the college campus, I would check the Christian box. I avoided most of the big sins, at least the misdemeanors on up. I was socially acceptable. I was pretty well behaved. But church, no thanks. Not going to happen. I saw it as a place that things happened. I saw it as a time during the week, and I thought it was boring. And why is the church so boring is a real question from and for real people, and I think it has a real answer too. And you'll remember back when we started this in week one how we looked at how people are deconstructing from the local church at an increasingly fast pace. We saw that, how many are checking the Christian box and avoiding the big sins out of shame, but really not attached to anything called a local church or a church at all. And one of the things we also looked at in that first week is how maybe, maybe as we reconstruct what Christianity looks like and maybe stop living on the borrowed faith of yesteryear, asking ourselves really hard questions. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we do what we do. And so I think today is going to be helpful when it comes to this thing called the church. And just know, when I say church, I don't mean time and I don't mean place, but I do mean a people. That's going to be important for us. So let's look at Acts 2.42. This is a keystone passage. 
um, for the church. And we're only going to go through five verses. We went through a lot of passages last week. We read quite a bit of Acts. We're just going to do five today. And this is the word of the Lord for us. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay. This passage is often taught as a sort of template for how you and I are supposed to exist together. That's typically how we hear it. Even though we're in 2022, and this was in the 30s AD, we do see some elements that we want to keep. For sure, we do. But I just want to say at the get-go, this is not the greatest version of the church. And I've had it taught that way, that if we could just get back to Acts 2, that that is the most pure, distilled version of what the church is supposed to look like. I think probably the best iteration of the church is the one that is to come, when Jesus collects us and sin is extracted out of us and all things that are sad and greedy and heinous become untrue and we can interact in the glory of God. I think that's the I think that's the better version of the church. I'm not some race to get back to Acts 2, but I am hopeful to get us to look a little bit more like Revelation 7, okay? A different church altogether. But there are some big features here that do function as a little bit of source code for us moving forward. And and there's a mood in this passage, a very basic one too. These people in this passage, those five verses, not bored. They're not bored. And they should have been bored. I mean, straight up, no professional speakers. The preachers weren't pros at all. They had zero repetitions at the pulpit. No youth ministry at all. No solid facilities. No live stream. No seminaries to make the bigger, better pastor. No podcasts on leadership. No free coffee or worship albums or gifts out in the foyer or men's retreats or anything like that. None of that. Yet, you walk away from a passage like this knowing, feeling, understanding that everybody was kind of sitting on the edge of anticipation with the big question of what's possible today? You kind of get that. God is adding to them every single day. Your feet hit the ground and you wake up thinking, what is God going to do today? Like what crazy thing is going to happen today? What miracle and wonder are we going to see today? It's exciting, this mood. We see phrases like, and they devoted themselves. We see phrases like, day by day. What we're really seeing in these five verses is an everyday devotion, and it is not boring. Not at all. But what does an unboring church deliver? Because that is the big question, right? One of the harder questions that we need to ask ourselves is, what do we expect from the local church or the church in general? What are we supposed to expect Is it delivering or is it just boring? And whose fault is that? And is that normal? These are important for us because one of the things we see is that the unboring church, and that is a word, I looked it up, don't email me. The unboring church is devoted to a few things. One of them is learning. 
We trip on that as soon as we get into this text. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So day by day, they would attend the temple, which was the more formal of their settings. This, this would be more of a, a, a analogous to what we're doing as a temple thing. We're all getting together in a public space. And this would be also what we would call the church gathered. Not the church scattered, but the church gathered. And Peter or somebody like Peter would stand up and preach and teach to the various people who are asking the same question I had when I first got radically born again, and that is, what now? What now? Yes, I want to know how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Yes, I want to know more of the texture of the gospel story, but what does that mean for my life going forward. I mean, these people had lives that were already complicated. This 3,120 that started the second day of the church's history, they already had complicated lives. Listen, they're just like you. They already had a mission statement for their life. This is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm about. They had a vision of where they wanted to go. They had values that kind of held them together. And then Jesus comes along, tumps it upside down, and says, new mission, new values, new vision. Their life was already complicated. What does this mean? What does it mean for marriage? How do you do marriage in the light of the gospel? How do you handle money now in light of the gospel? What about sex? What about how you handle widows? Meat used in sacrifices. Temper tantrums. Authorities when they don't behave. Authorities when they do behave. Slavery. How we see death. How we see the sanctity of life. Forgiveness. Depression. Anxiety. What do we do now? What does life look like as we bask in the light of the truth of the gospel? Man, I remember when I became radically saved, I sponged up everything. What now was a question I carried for quite a while. I mean, if the doors were open, I was there. If there was a teaching on a cassette tape, I tracked it down and found it and borrowed it from somebody. I probably never gave it back. I'd put it in my Ford Escort and listen to it over and over again on the way back and forth from school because I was just a sponge. I wanted to know how to live this life. Here's the thing. I wasn't bored. I wasn't bored. I was possessed with the adventure of looking more and more like Christ. Let me tell you what's boring. It's being unchanged by the gospel, but doing churchy things. Boring. That's why I left. That's why I left the church. I'll tell you what else is boring. Settling for shallow answers to hard questions because of a fear of learning. Some of you might even catch yourself saying this from time to time or thinking it, that I used to learn so much more than I do now. Man, I used to explore the Bible so much more. I used to read so much more and journal so much more and conquer so much more content and learn so much more than I do now. That probably means you're getting bored, right? You're getting bored. Let me just say, if you are bored, it's because your mind is too small. I don't mean that as a way to throw dirt on you. I'm saying that your horizons are collapsing in on you and all you see and all you understand is what the world is telling you is true. But that is not all there is, is there? There's more. There's more to this life. A few years ago, we looked at C.S. Lewis's work, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we talked about how Narnia was under this heavy spell where Lewis says it was always winter and never Christmas, right? And we always talked about how the centerpiece of that story was actually the wardrobe. And if you don't know what a wardrobe is, it's just a big closet. It's like a closet that's not inside the wall like our closets are today. It's just a big piece of furniture, but it's finite. And to be honest, it's kind of boring. It has edges, hinges, 
doors, it holds clothing. It's just a very pedestrian piece of furniture. And so as these kids find it, Susan, the older one, the skeptic, would look at it and say, it's just an ordinary wardrobe. Look at it. You could see the back of it. And she was right. But Lucy, the younger one, said, this must simply be an enormous wardrobe. It's huge. You see, many of us are like Susan in this, this story. We see the gospel, but it's not a doorway to splendor. It's not something to be explored. It's just a piece of furniture with its own limitations. It's covered with dust. It's common and basic. It doesn't pull on our imagination at all. This was a church that was devoted to learning. And let me just tell you, the more you learn about God... And the more you see in the texture of who he is and what he has done, the more you plumb the depths of who he is and what he has done, just to find out that you haven't even gotten started, the more boundless he seems, the more adventure you live in, and the less boring your life is. The less boring your life is. We see something else really quickly, and this is probably where we'll spend most of our time, and that's that the unboring church is devoted to one another. And that's because that takes up the bulk of the passage. Day by day, they wouldn't just gather in the temple. They would scatter in homes. But they had rhythms that were day by day. This, these would be smaller meetings, more missionally minded meetings, more communally bound meetings. And this is where they would take what they would learn and watch it kind of get installed into their operating system. But this is how people grow. I mean, think about the things called accountability, encouragement, rebuke, instruction, exhortation, discipleship, mentorship, correction. Those are all done in community. Can't do any of those alone. Those are all done in plurality. You grow best in tight proximity. I mean, everybody that walked in here wants to change. Everybody, all of us, we want to change. I want to change. I understand that my best shot at change is going to be inside of community. It's my best chance, my best chance for growth. If growing could come just by education alone, then Sunday morning's enough, honestly. I mean, check that. You don't even need Sunday morning. You could just grow on YouTube. You could mature your way through Christianity just by Spotify and YouTube. We're educated to death today. I've got things on my Spotify account now that took me seconds to download for free that 10 years ago would have cost me $50,000, $60,000 just in education alone. Just in education alone. But that's not enough, is it? And I'll even crank down, and I will even argue that most of your growth will come when you bump into each other and when you bump into mission. That's where most of the growth is going to be found. Because there's friction. Man, I love it. I love, love the heat and the friction that come whenever we start colliding with each other. Whenever we start colliding with the cost of mission, there's so much, so much potential. There's so much opportunity to grow. There's so much opportunity to put your own crowns down and to be shaped in the gospel, to display something beautiful and just not yap about it, but actually do it. There's something beautiful about it. I love it. I know it's uncomfortable for the rest of the room and it feels awkward, but what do you think it was like in Acts 2? I mean, when we read this passage in Acts 2, we imagine the church full of people that did nothing but side hug and get along and return things they borrowed on time and never dominate conversations and weren't weirdos. Wrong. That's not how they were, though. 
keep reading. We won't get very far, and you'll start seeing some collisions. Or just skip to the punchline and read 1 Corinthians. Paul is talking to a very sloppy and messy people, just like us, just like us. But let me tell you what's boring when everybody pretends and everybody is passive-aggressive or fake or has a mask on, when everybody is partially in attendance, and when they do attend, they are partially present, partially authentic, barely there. I think that's a crime. I think that's a crime. I mean, if we could just tighten the screws, it doesn't feel like there's any more room to tighten it. If we could just tighten the screws a little bit more on that, devotion to one another isn't something we do for Jesus. It's actually something we do with Jesus. With Jesus. This is what I mean when I say that. Jesus identifies with his church to such a degree that he sees no distinction, no, big let, no distinction between himself and the church. There's no air between him and the bride. They are joined together, which is why you find that being said in wedding ceremonies. They are one, which is why you will see in the Bible, whenever he knocks Saul off the horse, what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But he's not persecuting Christ. Man, woman, and child he is. He's locking people up. He's after the church, hot after the church. But when Saul says, Lord, who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's what we see. Paul tells the Romans, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And then he tells the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He sees no distinction To be connected to the church is to be connected to Christ, and to be connected to Christ is to be connected to the church. So whenever you were born into this world as a baby, you weren't born into autonomy, you were born into a family. And it's going to be the exact same in this case. This is why you cannot biblically detach yourself from the church and still check the Christian box in obedience. not saying you're not a Christian, I'm saying you're not an obedient one. Not an obedient one. In America, we think it's okay to divorce the groom from his bride and still pretend obedience to the groom. Not so. Not so. And I'll tell you, after a couple decades of doing this, one truism I've learned is that when people are out of fellowship with Jesus, most typically they're out of fellowship with his church. That's obvious. The opposite also is true. And when people are out of fellowship with the church, they are likely out of fellowship with Jesus. Let me say that again. When people are out of fellowship with the church, they are likely out of fellowship with Jesus, which is why when people you know and love have gone missing, they're typically not doing well. They're not doing well. I know they're telling you that they are. They're telling you that they're fine. They're not. They've detached from Jesus' church, whom he has no distinction from. They're detaching from Christ in his church. They are not doing well. Friends, <laughs> listen. They want you to, they are not doing well. But it takes a lot of energy to build this thing called the church, which is why I said last week, community isn't something we just find. It's something that we have to build. It's something that we have to work hard at. And what we're building is a portrait of the gospel for a needy world to see and understand, for a lonely world to understand. That way when we speak our words, there's an illustration that holds it together and they see exactly what we're talking about. Just like if you're smiling 
it's an expression of a glad heart. Or if you're crying, it's an expression of sadness of some kind. So is the church, when it's healthy, an expression of the gospel, the good news of God for mankind through the person of Jesus. Which is why Jesus says in John 13 to love one another, to love one another. We see Paul tell the Roman church that we are members of one another, that we are to out-honor one another, to instruct one another, to show concern for one another, as he tells the Corinthian church, or the Galatian church, that we are to serve one another, that we are to carry one another's burdens. tells the Ephesian church that we are to patiently bear with one another, to show compassion for one another, to submit to one another. Philippian church, he says, to prefer one another. James says that we should refuse to complain about one another, that we should refuse to criticize one another. Peter says to show hospitality to one another. There's about 15 more verses of how you and I are supposed to exist with one another. I will say one anothering it's a ridiculous way to get ahead in this world. One anothering, it's never going to make you comfortable. It's costly, but like a giant smile communicates a glad heart, one anothering communicates a good God. It communicates a very good God, which is why Jesus says in John 13, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, and by this all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. It is our love for one another that depicts, that shows, that brags on how much he loves us. Because the gospel is the story of a God who is patient, who serves, humbly serves, all the way to death, who did not criticize and complain about us on the way to the cross, who instructed us with his very own life and then continues to instruct us from the cross. And then he, then he bears our burdens all of them, and then shows you and me a distinct and beautiful hospitality, making space and room for outsiders as a grace to us. The gospel's about a story of God who is all of those things, and a church is one that embodies all of those things. Now, something I think jumps out, and I'm going to go ahead and get in front of it on this passage, is, and it's going to sound like a weird question, are we seeing socialism and communism here in this passage? It is a question that pastors get. The only reason I even want to waste a minute on it is because it becomes exhibit A for what I'm talking about in one anothering, right? It says that they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay, well, what are the boundaries to that? There's got to be some boundaries. Does everybody sell everything? What does everything mean? What if you've got a lot of everything? What if you don't have very much? What are the rules? Does it happen the day you get saved? Do you do this at all? Do you never do this? Did this die out at some point in history? Lots of questions here. And I think the question has actually gotten louder in the last 20 years, especially from the college campus and the university, when mankind is starting to reevaluate and wonder if socialism and communism is actually kinder and more thoughtful for our fellow man than capitalism is. Right? Many people say that Jesus was a socialist. They said that when I was on the campus in the late 90s. Is Jesus a socialist? Because the early church here, they would argue, has no private property. They're giving it all up, right? Let me just say we are not seeing a picture of socialism here, 
but intense generosity. Very intense generosity. You see, socialism and communism will actually destroy the gospel picture here because it's coerced. It's compelled. This does not show a refusal of your freedom to own private property. It actually shows you a picture of your freedom to give it up. Give it up to the level you feel called to do so. I understand people being frustrated and pushing this passage into more of a communistic framework because they look around and they see a world where people are just dispossessed and marginalized and frantically fighting just to stay alive in a country where three or four guys own more wealth than the bottom half of our country. It's frustrating for sure. I mean, what if we all put our combined property together? What if we all did that? What if we all sold everything? liquidated everything, turned it into cash and put it into one big pot and then carved it up and then handed it out. What if we did that? Is this what the gospel tells us to do? And this ends up being a question that people with means ask themselves more than people without means. But is that something that we do? What we're seeing is extreme generosity and how it is an expression of an extremely generous gospel. That is what it is. If it was coerced, it wouldn't look like the gospel anymore. If it was compelled and coerced, then it couldn't be done in joy, benevolently. It couldn't have been done sacrificially because it would have been removed from you. It would no longer look like the gospel. Yes, we're called to destroy destitution wherever we can. No, this is not coerced. It has a gospel shape, but it's not compelled. And of course they had private property. I don't know why that's even an argument. I mean, they're breaking bread in people's homes, which would mean people had homes, right? It mean people would own homes. And if, and if stealing is a sin in the Old Testament like it is in the New Testament, that would also insinuate that people own things. And there's about 15 other things you could point to to show that, yes, the church is allowed to have private property. But what I want you to see is that intense generosity shows that we are free to give what we rightly own. We're free to do it which is why Paul tells the church in 2 Corinthians, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Odd passage. What does that even mean that Jesus was rich? I mean, he entered this world with a poor family and a poor place, living a poor life. What does it mean he was rich? I mean, he existed in the depth of wealth and profited from the Trinity of God in eternity past. He was in that comfortable glory that was the Trinity, always in the Father's presence, always with the Spirit of God right there. That's, and what he did, he impoverished himself to come down, be with us, and in doing so, enriched us, bringing us the wealth of every spiritual blessing in heaven, the Bible says bringing us into a royal family with royal blood in our veins. This is what he says should compel our giving. This wasn't demanded, though. He's not demanding this from the Corinthian church. It's joyfully giving. You see, one anothering has a price tag. And and when we deploy our wealth, we do so in the shape of the gospel, And when I say deploy, I mean both what we give to the kingdom and the local church and both what we spend outside of that giving. All of it is money, treasure, it is resource that we deploy, which is why Jake was just up here praying for it. He's not, listen, he's not praying so that you give more money to Legacy Church. How goofy would that be? He's praying so that what we invest in the kingdom, what we invest in the city, what we invest in the local church 
is in the shape of the gospel, for sure. But we are also glorifying God in how we spend the rest of our money. The rest of it. That's why we pray for this on Sunday mornings. But I will say, if you're not practicing different depths of generosity, it might be because you're struggling with the liberating freedom that the gospel brings us. It's hard for you. Let me just say, I write checks to this church. I do. I know it might sound weird. I write checks to Legacy Church, right? Even though I'm, I'm, I'm on staff. But I don't do this because it's the right thing to do. And I don't do it so we can get a cooler facility or a dope youth pastor. I do it because it is demonstrating the gospel that made me spiritually wealthy. I'll tell you what's boring, though, is coming to worship a God in a space like this when we carried another God with us in a checkbook or a portfolio. I think that's a boring life. I think it's boring. And what we'll see, and I'm barely going to touch on this because I don't want to spend a lot of time. We'll have other passages in this same book that we can really explore this a little bit deeper, but the unboring church is devoted to changing the city. By the way, just if you've ever been through our partnership class, this is where we get our three postures. How as missional communities, we have a posture inward, upward, and outward. That's what we just did in that order, right? We have a posture upward towards learning, being devoted. We have one inward where we want another each other, and we have one outward where we have city change in mind, right? But here's the thing that's interesting about this passage. You don't see a single dominant strategy to reach the lost for Jesus. There's not one in there. There's no program mentioned, no big campaign mentioned. <laughs> to win people to Jesus. I'm telling you, I've been in staff meetings and pastors meetings for over two decades where I've been a part of so many attempts to stir the church up for evangelism and an outward mind. I can't, I've lost Project Philip, Operation Andrew, the Lighthouse Movement, Evangelism Explosion, the two-question test, the Gospel Road. I have lost count. I'm not against those things either. I actually grow a lot in structured environments. If I have structure, I can grow like a weed. I think some of these things are really good. But this church, in our passage, as far as we can tell, in this piece of scripture, they just did really good blocking and tackling. They covered the basics so well that people were watching them interact with each other and interact with their Bibles, what they had at the time, interacting with the city, and they saw Jesus. And they would listen to the gospel and they would get radically saved and God would add them. That's why it says they had favor with all the people and many were being saved daily. I think that's fascinating. You know, as we keep growing our missional communities, um, we're still, we've got a lot to learn as a church on how to do that. Even our leadership team, we have a lot to learn on how to administrate those and nurture our, our community group leaders and, and help you guys with mission. But one of the things that we're kind of learning on whether or not it's time to plant a new missional community is just a single question. Do you have enough room for two empty chairs? Do you have enough room for the city if the city decided to come in? I mean, if they wanted to come in and be a part of this thing that they're hearing about, would there be room for them? If not, it's probably time to plan another missional community. It might even be cool, just as a reminder that there's a city perishing, to have just a couple empty chairs there, something to pray for, just something symbolic to pull us all outward in our dimensions and not just inward. But even if we do that, 
and people come into our living rooms, what will they experience when they fill those chairs? What will it look like? Will it be boring? And this is what I mean when I say that. It could be the most polished, streamlined, impressive, put-together moment and be absolutely boring. And it could have plenty of friction and be sloppy and awkward and be exhilarating. That's how I got saved. I was in a meeting just like that. It was so sloppy. People saying boneheaded things, doing boneheaded things. Nobody knew what they were talking about. And yet, I was blown away by the devotion, the authenticity, this drive to be fascinated by Christ. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't boring either, though. Plenty of friction. And even in that, I grew. There was growth there. Listen, I don't want to miss the big E on the I chart with this passage. Sure, my hope has always been for us to be a forward-leaning church. I think we've done that to a certain degree. But I'm discontent with just building something that is outward-leaning and yet boring at the same time, right? But unboring does not bring a lot of smoke and mirrors up here. It doesn't mean me getting better at professionally speaking or improving our graphics or ramping up our music. An unboring church is one that is devoted to being authentic with each other, one that is sacrificial with our time, our talent, and our treasure. It means being devoted to learning, being devoted to one anothering, and being devoted to city change around us. We're going to have some boring church services. I'm, I imagine we've had quite a few. Some of you are like, this one is boring, dude. What are you talking about? You'll have some boring devotional moments just between you and Jesus. Your missional community meetings, your comm groups, some of those will be boring. They will be. Church services and gatherings and scatterings, they can be boring for sure. Spirit-filled churches cannot. Do you hear me? Spirit-filled churches cannot. If you're bored today, I want you to ask yourself whether or not you're detached, undevoted. We'll use that. Undevoted from the word, from community, from the mission of the church. I think what's common is Whenever we are looking for a people, we are demanding exciting things. We demand exciting services full of exciting people saying exciting things that will inspire us to stop sinning while at the same time remaining undevoted. I'm just going to say again, you're going to find your best growth in the midst of imperfect people being very clunky in imperfect settings. I mean, when people come up to me and they say, Luke, I want to be a part of a missional community. I want, to get, I want to get more involved. I want to be in a community. The first thing I think of is I'm about to, I'm about to join this person to a broken group. And we've got like almost a dozen groups now. I know the basics for every group. I know some of the big problems that are happening in most of the groups. And I'm excited about it. I can't wait for them to walk into that awkward moment where they're like, what is going on? I love those moments. It's the essence. It's, it holds the possibility for growth. But are you detached? Are you undevoted because of the sloppiness? And I think another aspect that this passage leans into us on is are we forsaking our day-by-day -day rhythms? I listen to a lot of 
um, cultural analysts, especially church culture analysts. I mean, you, I mean, there is such a thing. There's so many churches. There are people that analyze these things. And one of the things they're saying is pre-pandemic, the bell curve of the average Christian felt like the most suitable bandwidth of time to give to church. We'll just say church, even though I know we're talking about people, right, is 90 minutes a week. 90 minutes. And that would include Sunday morning. So it might be like a quick coffee, something like that, and a service, or just a service, depending on the church that you went to and how long the services were. Post-pandemic, it is now 90 minutes every three weeks. 90 minutes every three weeks. I find that to be true, right? Let me just say this before I jump out. Attendance matters. (laughs) Presence matters. Consistency matters. Frequency matters. Nobody improves their marriage by syncing up with their spouse a couple hours a week or 90 minutes a week or every three weeks. If you are in the habit of being undevoted to a constant rhythm and when you are there being not authentic, not being present, I guess we can say that, you're not going to grow, friend. Hear me now. You're not going to grow. It takes solid consistency to change and grow. And more important than that, people won't see the gospel in you. They can't see the gospel clearly. They see boredom, but not the gospel. And I know, listen, I know, the pandemic has knocked a lot of people off balance with their rhythms. You know, you grow, you have an entrenched rhythm, and then something abrupt comes and dislodges that, and then it just feels hard. It's like going back to the gym, I guess, where a lot of people, it's hard to get that back into their rhythm. Let me just say something you already know. Consistency matters. Attendance matters. Frequency matters. So as we reconstruct what the local church can look like, you have to have that component in there. But here's the good news. For those of us who are undevoted and don't do our rhythms day by day, we have a devoted Jesus who was broken to build a church with people that would be devoted and not devoted. Our groom We are his bride. Our groom disintegrated on a criminal's cross so that you and I could one another very well. He did that so that you and I could peer into the wardrobe and see this land that once was full of winter and no Christmas. We could look in and see the depth of the splendor of the glory of God beckon us, call us into something much deeper as far as adventure. Right before us, Or we could declare war on boredom. You need to know if you find yourself bored with God, God does not find himself bored with you. That's part of why the gospel is so beautiful. His love in you, his investment in you, does not waver because of your lack of awe and wonder for him. You're free to be bored. Free. Even though the cross and the tomb invites you to adventure, you're totally free to be bored. And you are free to be on mission with each other, free to grow, free to enjoy him, to be intoxicated and fascinated by the idea of more Jesus, free to always be in awkward settings with brutally awkward people, free to be in sloppy moments among the imperfect and grow. You're free to do that as well. And listen, I know I'm talking to people who are far from Jesus at the same time, whether they're watching online or you're here even, I don't know. But I would just say that 
take it from somebody who has walked before a church as somebody who is looking in from the outside thinking it was boring. There is nothing boring about a truly Christian life. There is a lot boring about a fake Christian life. But one thing I know is when I walk through the wardrobe, adventure began, and what's next and what's possible became the mantra every single day. Jesus did something beautiful to member you with us and to member you with himself. And the same Holy Spirit that added people day by day back then is doing so today. And if that's you, I pray that you would submit your life to this and join the adventure, join the sloppy, join the awkward and imperfect, even join a church where there will be boring moments, but where you'll never be bored. And listen, as I try to finish every week of just peering into the future, there will be a day where addition stops. There will be no more added to the church. Isn't that interesting when you think about it that way? We're all collected. And you and I will find ourselves shoulder to shoulder with this 3,120 people. Pretty cool, right? And we're going to get to break bread with them. 